Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. What's up? Morning. What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, Mike, Terrence with one R, Jordan, Tomer, Peter. We've got Jacob on the Pacific Bitcoin handle. However, he is doing um, best producer, producer in the game things. Jake. He's doing, yeah, he's doing things. <laughs> we got Neil Jacobs on the swan handle. Good morning to all of you guys. Good morning, Mickey Koss. Good morning and shout out to Lindsay Koss in the audience. I am throwing you an invite, young lady. If you want to come up here, you're welcome to do so. No obligation. We won't embarrass you, I promise. She's awesome. She's had several articles now published in, is it Bitcoin Magazine? I think it's Bitcoin Magazine. Alex. We we know you're old, but Lindsay's the mother of three children. I think calling her a young lady is a little inappropriate. It's a Kiss my ass. Most gals are young ladies to me. It just is what it is, bro. Because Alex is old. I'm just glad that uh, over the weekend uh, with the Bitcoin veterans handle, we had a space and it kind of seemed like we maybe broke Lindsay into the comfortability of getting into spaces and getting into talking. So hopefully she engages more often. It's, it's nice to hear from her and Mickey at the same time. How was the uh, profanity in the space? Uh, I don't know. So probably, uh, probably pretty normal for us. Yeah. I didn't notice anything. Uh, so I, I guess it's probably pretty bad, but we got Lindsay to bump to throw up the fist at the end there. It was awesome. Made it worth it. Yeah, I've been trying to encourage Mike to do some um, relationship-oriented spaces. <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> people need it, though, man. There's so many confused people out there. I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, we would probably get us in trouble. Completely off topic from Bitcoin. All right, let's come back to Bitcoin. <laughs> Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. This is episode 471. Shout outs to our supporters on Fountain and Noster Nests. Our mission for this show is to provide a signal in a sea of noise, teach the other 7 billion people on this planet why there's hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin today. We're going to be covering Bitcoin's purpose. And this is basically going to be opinions because nobody really gets to say what its purpose is. 
Satoshi had a white paper, which you know states what Satoshi's purpose for Bitcoin is. But it's interesting how um, evolution and time and things like that. I mean, will Bitcoin change because of the people who continue to join it in concentric rings of of adoption? I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I would say that Bitcoin does have a purpose in, in the sense of it allow it provides an economic constant so you can accurately assess the economic viability and activity that's going on. It's like the, uh, the analogy that I dropped in um, one, of, I, one of our recent episodes, I think it was episode 18, uh, with regards to the um, comparing it to if you were to constantly drip mercury into a thermometer and your AC is based off the thermometer, like you're going to have an inaccurate reading. You're not going to understand why the system's not operating properly. So when you have something like Bitcoin that is not capable of being flippantly printed at the whims of whatever Federal Reserve governors or politicians want to do for government spending, you get a more accurate representation of what something is actually worth or what economic activity is actually doing. All right. Fair point. And let's dig into that further here in a little bit. I bet you Tomer has some thoughts in this area, but other things we can talk about today. Apparently, uh, BSV is being delisted from Coinbase. No one is surprised. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. The SEC is having recruiting challenges. So is the U.S. military, by the way. I mean, I don't know if you guys want to talk about that, but that's been a, an item of discussion in the Bitcoin veteran back channels which are growing like crazy. By the way, if you are a veteran, see this handle up here on the stage? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or even first responder or veteran adjacent, military adjacent, shoot a DM to this Bitcoin veterans handle. We have groups, discussion groups that we're setting up uh, in there growing continuously. I mean, our objective is, look, there's, there's over 8 million veterans in the United States of America alone. We're starting to pull in veterans from other countries now, by the way. We now have guys from the you know, British military. We have guys from um, the Australian military. And we hope to just continue to add people. This is not like a partisan or a country thing. This is just more about... It's just a bunch of warriors, man, who, who are on a new mission, basically. Like, well, and, maybe. and Alex, and to that point, I think it's also important to um, acknowledge that it's all ranks from like PV one up to the upper echelons of the uh, commissioned officer ranks. And everybody's capable of having like equal and fair conversation. Cause like within the military that, you know, they have the, the segregation of the ranks to try and like, you know, keep the hierarchy, but within our group chats and our signal, um, the, the conversation is on equal footing and like, it's, it's nice to see everybody from across all the different ranks and the different jobs and the different armies now basically all having the same or equal point of view and just discussing the problems that like we're, we're facing, not just in America, but across like the world and developed nations in particular. Yeah. It's also fascinating that we, I mean, we have some of some pretty high ranking former and active duty actually officers I'm talking like 05, 06 level guys. And it's interesting to hear their thoughts on stuff because uh, normally they're not that candid when they're, you know, doing their job. But uh, it's very interesting and fascinating to see how um, aligned everybody is and, and on the mission. So anyway, 
Um, other stuff that's happening is PayPal's stablecoin is having some challenges, and there's also maybe we can discuss some of the bullish things that are occurring. So we're going to start with this. This was a tweet by BJ Boyapati. I'm going to call this the tweet of the day. It's the best tweet I've seen in the last 48 hours, basically. Bitcoin's mission is not to replace PayPal or Visa or some middling payments company. Its mission is to replace the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, to restore a sound monetary base that was destroyed when the gold window was finally closed on August 15th, 1971. What are your thoughts, people? Well, that, that, like, I agree with that because, like, that's one of the things that I've liked to talk about in the sense of, like, when, when we, when we talk about Bitcoin versus fiat, I think it, it is important to be responsible in considering that, um, the desire for credit and debt and pulling those kinds of, that kind of spending forward to, for individuals that are interested in it and, you know, capable of being responsible to, uh, you know, just get like, say, for example, infrastructure built out, right. So they can pay off, pay it off over time or something like that. There's like the fact that there's always going to be individuals or countries or companies or organizations that want to do that and want to engage in that kind of activity is means it's not going to go away. And that it's important to kind of, in my opinion, to try and view Bitcoin as a, just a, checks and balance on the rest of the economic system that is based entirely off of a fiat currency that, as we've discussed ad nauseum, can just be flippantly printed at whoever whims are in control of the printer, right? Like it, they're like the, the, the engaging in the purity test stuff is a little bit um, not based in reality, in my opinion. And, and it's good that Vijay Boyapati is helping kind of get that discussion pushed out a little bit further. I think uh, kind of like going off of that, what Mike's been talking about is it being like a the economy needing like some kind of benchmark, right, to like base everything off of. I, you know, I think replacing the dollar as the global reserve currency is cool, but I, I think I see it replacing. I think it becomes the global reserve asset first because that makes everything based off of it and. While it'd be great to like replace currencies, that would at least force the currencies to be honest, or at least even if they're not, it's going to be reflected if everything is across the economy globally is based on this global reserve asset that isn't changing. You know, I think most people think of Bitcoin as, as just like another tech stock type thing. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand the monetary system. And so, I mean, a lot of people talk about Bitcoin standard. I think layered money by Nick Batia was, was much more significant for me, characterizing like the money system in layers and how the world reserve asset is U.S. treasuries. And so Bitcoin, at the very least, moving up to replace U.S. treasuries potentially draining the government of their funding sources and, and making governments more responsible, I think is hugely impactful.
Yeah, I think people maybe un, uh, miss the forest for the trees. Is like if you can, like what Mickey just said, that's a big source of government funding is the USTs that other countries are buying up our debt so that we can keep it going. Well, if you make that to where that's not what people are investing in long term, even nation states, then it doesn't really matter if you, I think eventually the dollar gets replaced simply because there's no backing there at all. Um, so as com- as countries and individuals and corporations start to move to Bitcoin being their reserve asset, like kind of like the micro strategy plan, you remove their source of funding for long-term, then they have to actually do things voluntarily. Tomer, do you have any thoughts? Does Bitcoin have a purpose? Yeah, I've, I've got some thoughts on that. Uh, uh, I wrote a book called Why Bitcoin, and the first article in that book uh, is called Why Does Why Bitcoin Exists. And the first words of that article are, "What is the purpose of Bitcoin?" So, yeah, I've got, I've been thinking about this for a while, um, and. In in that article, I, I, I wrote that Bitcoin's purpose is to s- provide reliable money that will serve all mankind forever, um, and that's that's kind of the simplified version. But but I point out in the article that the money that we currently use is unreliable. It fails to serve all mankind, and its days are numbered. And so it's got limited time. It's not serving mankind, and it's not reliable. And and so it's a very lofty goal that Bitcoin has. It's meant to be around for forever. It's meant to serve not just some people, but all people equally. And it's and it's meant to be this sound standard that do, that doesn't break. And and that's exactly when you study how it was designed. You see, well, that's really how it was designed. It it wasn't um, it wasn't stated in as lofty a manner but it was designed to not break in time it was designed to be accessible to anyone and everyone whenever they chose to use it and was designed to be to have integrity to not be breakable not be corruptible so when you start with these simple premises and you build something around that architect from an architecture or engineering perspective you end up with something that is perhaps far greater than what the inventor was thinking at the time in terms of its impact, which is why we now see so many people so interested in it in these times when the current money that we have is failing us. Also, recently, the the most recent piece that I published, I think, on the Swan blog is another one of these pieces where I try to write as though I'm speaking in the voice of Bitcoin. And uh, let me just see if I can quickly uh, pull it up here. Uh, Bitcoin, me channeling Bitcoin, says... uh, that it thinks, uh, let me just find it. it, it describes itself as an extraordinary object for a universal purpose. Uh, and in it, uh, it says, I, I'll, I won't, again, get too much into the details of my article, but it says, I know this purpose of being honest money for human beings is the primary purpose I was created to fulfill. Those entries in my records represent hard, uh, represent honest money. It's money that cannot be coerced by force. It's money that can only be initially earned by spending energy in a way that is valuable to all the users of that money. So there's depending on which avenue you want to go, both of these things are free. Swan.com slash why Bitcoin to download a free PDF of the book. 
And swan.com slash blog, it's like the third or fourth article in called Yours Truly Bitcoin, if you want to dig in deeper to either of those topics. Terrence with one R, do you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, similar to Tomer, it's I have written about this as well, and it's one reason why I titled my book Proof of Money. I, you know, strongly believe that until Bitcoin came along, we never had money. We like Bitcoin is the first time we've actually had money. We've been trying, we've had a lot of attempts, we've had surrogates, we've had coupons. And it wasn't until money, until Bitcoin came along, that not only did we realize what money is, but made us realize that we've had all these imperfect sort of collectibles and tokens and things that have stolen our time. So sort of like Tomer was saying, and as a lot of us know here, we finally have something that values the only asset that really matters in our life, and that's time. That you know, if we're going to provide value, if we're going to be productive and effectual and contribute to society and our communities, you know, what's to motivate us to give more rather than take more if we can't finitely secure our time and carry it forward and give it to our children and give it to society, you know, give our time out to others that we don't need because We've learned how to be effective. We've innovated. And now it can be done honestly and transparently. And anyone can audit it. And there's nothing to hide. And it just becomes egalitarian for everybody, right? It's, it's equal opportunity. It may not be equal outcome because of proof of work. But I, th- I believe that that's Bitcoin's purpose, that it's, its purpose is to be money. Period. All right. I think we've pretty much crushed that. Lindsay, congratulations on your articles. Thanks. Thanks for all the support. You're welcome. And if anybody ever gives you crap, just, you know, understand that's the price of doing anything of significance. It's okay. And Bitcoin veterans will rush to your defense. Yeah, you'll get a whole gang of dudes backing you up. All right. Also in the news, Coinbase is delisting. BSV. <gasps> Shocker. I'm sure no one ever saw this coming. I, I love the disclaimer in the letter when they say that if you don't withdraw by the, what is it, the 9th of January or something, that um, there may be tax consequences and because they're just going to automatically sell it and turn it into uh, some convertible, which, I mean, is it worth anything? In Bitcoin terms, no, it's not. So this is the letter from Coinbase. Upcoming changes to BSV capabilities. Effective January 9th, 2024. 
Coinbase will no longer support Bitcoin SV, aka BSV. <clears throat> Users are able to withdraw BSV until support for this asset is deprecated on January 9th. If you fail to withdraw your BSV funds, Coinbase will liquidate any remaining BSV in your Coinbase account. Upon liquidation, your BSV will be converted to the then equivalent market value of another supported digital. And they're not going to even give you dollars. They're just going to apparently pick some random freaking shit coin that they convert you to. And they're going to charge you transaction fees to do it. We're gonna we're gonna rotate you into another gambling vehicle. Have fun. Is there any even infrastructure built so that you can cold storage BSV? I mean, is there? Can you even do that with that particular token? I'm pretty I sure. Uh, no I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure on like wallets like Trezor or Ledger, you probably can. Waste of space. Seems a little shady though. Like they're basically saying we can like we convert it to the then market value equivalent or the then equivalent market value of another supported digital asset. Meaning, I mean, it doesn't say you can choose, they're just gonna do it, which means they could game this pretty hard. You know, they can basically say to any of their buddies, hey, which one of you guys wants to dump a bunch of shares or shares, basically, dump a bunch of your crap here. And, uh, ugh, it's gross. The the scariest part of this is that it sounds like Coinbase can do that with any of the VC coins that they have available that they've listed. I was literally just, I just hopped on stage to say exactly that. So thank you. <laughs> Wait, clarify that, please. What? Well, if they're delisting BSV and then they're going to go through this process, What's to stop them from delisting anything else and doing the same thing? Oh, nothing. Absolutely. That's a great point. But, and, and I mean, the, anybody who's been in this, listening to this show for any period of time knows we've said many times that at some point you're going to start seeing these things getting delisted, right? As the SEC goes around and basically says, you're a shit coin, you're a shit coin, you're a shit coin. In other words, you're an unregistered security, you're an unregistered security, you're an unregistered security. They're basically just going to say to the exchanges, look, these are unregistered unregistered securities, you must delist them. And my, I suspect that is only a matter of time. And my point is that you need to get your Bitcoin off of exchanges into cold storage because then that can't happen. Isn't it, uh, does anyone else find it odd that it, they say January 9th and then January 10th has been the date thrown out? I think that Bloomberg says like an 80% chance that the ETF gets approved. Is there any like, is that just coincidence? I didn't hear that. You heard that the ETF will be approved on January 10th? I think it was Bloomberg gave a 80% chance of January 10th being when the ETF gets approved just based, based on, on like, well, based on like there's the holiday season and like as basically working as fast as the government works, like that's when you could realistically see them getting around to approving it. 
January 10 is also um, the final deadline for Kathy Wood's ARC ETF. So she's actually first in line. And if her application is similar to the others, which I believe um, she's now aligned hers with BlackRock's, um, that that would be the date, January 10. And why, and why would uh, they choose January 9th to delist BSV? unless they were basing it off of some other information. Again, it could be like, that's eh, the holidays, beginning of the year. That's just like a good time to like get our ducks in a row. But mm. Could be. Anything else? Yeah, the first open source Bitcoin client was released on January 9th. Any, uh, any irony there? Yeah, it's going to be really curious to see what happens with all this stuff um, over the next year or two. Like, all of these things are basically making new lows measured against Bitcoin. There might be one or two exceptions to that, but not many. Well, even if they are exceptions, they, those exceptions tend to be short-lived and temporary. So if you look at across all of the different shitcoin um, options against all their charts charted against Bitcoin, it's it they all look the same. They all look like a relative pump and dump scheme where there's a lot of when when in measured in Bitcoin, right? Like yes. some of them, some of them think that oh, they're gonna they're gonna get a second chance at making some money because in measured in U.S. dollars, they might it looks like they might be getting some new action, right? But when measured against Bitcoin, they're it's always down and to the right. Yep. Over time, yeah. Was it the Bitcoin layer wrote a really good article about it? I just I just put it in the nest. It's called uh, "Insiders Always Dump," and it prices all these different shit coins and Bitcoin and shows exactly what Mike was talking about. They usually have one good pump against Bitcoin, but then they just fade and trend towards zero. Yeah, <clears throat> I have a couple of friends in my day-to-day life that um are still in the shit coiner phase and i've been you know obnoxiously telling them bitcoin only for a couple of years now and unfortunately they still haven't figured it out but even their mindset you hear you know because i'll talk to them just in general about what they're doing or what they what genius scheme they think they're they're in now and it's funny because even they think, oh, well, I'm just doing this because it'll allow me to get more Bitcoin. And I'm like, I, it won't, but okay. And so I, I think even a lot of people since the um, the last hype cycle have kind of maybe on the narrative side given up on a lot of the shit coins, which is a good thing. But it's crazy to me that some of them can just live for so long on, I guess, just hype and the momentum of the last cycle. I know, I know you look at a lot of them and the activity drops to basically zero even before the price does, but um, it's kind of crazy. The game of whack-a-mole just keeps going on. And so in behavioral economics, you have this 
principle called prospect theory. And so essentially it's losses hurt about twice as more than an equivalent gain feels good. And so people are so reluctant to take losses because it fucking kills them, man. And so all these idiots will just hold on to shit coins forever because it hurts their ego. You know, as long as you can hold on to hope that it might go up, I'm not selling because it might go back. It might break even, you know, what if I miss that thousand X pump? And so that's what, that's what a lot of these shit coins are, are built on is just like the broken dreams of, of people hoping to make it back to where they started, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's crazy too. Cause like I'll, um, I'll lurk in shitcoin spaces if they pop up on my suggested feed because Twitter still doesn't know the difference. But um, and if I can get on stage, I will and try to, you know, speak a little bit of truth. But a lot of the time they either won't let me on because they see that I post a lot of Bitcoin only stuff or um, I'll get on stage for like 30 seconds and then they'll kick me off. But um, I was on one the other day and it's it's insane that for the past, I don't know, five, six years, and I guess it's, it's a tale as old as time. This was happening before crypto and the, um, the scams and the format of them are almost the same where you have people that are doing these, like, it's like the same thing for the the guys that do like self-help, um, you know, do my thousand dollar class and I'll, teach you how to become rich or something like that you know it's it's very similar structures to those and the way that they funnel people into them and i was listening to this space and they kept bringing up I, i'm not a sports guy i'm a nerd so forgive me if you guys are into sports i think a lot of you probably are not either but it was some nfl player and they kept saying like oh if he gets into this or he's been talking about it so it's going to be crazy hype and it's just like how do people not see through this shit? It's kind of crazy to me, but um, they just kept bringing up this NFL player and I was able to get on stage for like 15 seconds. And I was like, what does this guy have to do with the functionality of this project? And how can you explain to me that this has anything to do with, you know, basically improving the world in any way, like you guys were talking about, you just keep basically relaying that this NFL player is interested in it and everybody in, in the um, audience is like just mindfully clapping. And I just thought it was hilarious and sad, but I tried to speak. I asked that one question. They just kicked me off stage and they called me a hater. Oh. And they were, they were basically like, Oh, you're just a hater. Um, he's going to miss it. Like make sure you get in and don't be like this guy. And I was like, yep, that's classic, classic scammer shit. But anyways, yeah, I just I, I find it so interesting that these shitcoin scammers use the same language as like the woke social Marxists, where they try to shame you, like, oh, you're not open minded, you're just like this closed minded fucking boomer Bitcoin guy. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, it's just shitty language. Yeah, there's no there's no logic to their arguments. You know, it's all just like pumpology and and hopium. Yeah, but I guess they're all fucking communists, so. Well, and, and po like political affiliation aside, it's also a problem with the like the, the reason these kinds of relationships develop is that people are outsourcing their accountability and responsibility to do their own research and to gain understanding of the project. They're outsourcing it to these individuals that have high social capital and like are perceived as relatively successful. So they just they, they want to just like push off those responsibilities to that individual. It's like, oh, well. 
if this person is this successful, even though they're successful in a completely different industry or domain that is not even remotely related, like Macro is talking about, um, they're just they they want to just like rest assured that they don't have to do that work and then they can just ride on the coattails of that individual's work. Like, no, that's not how that works. Well, it's crazy too, because like if you look at you know, a lot of NFL players are actually terrible with money. Like a lot of them, they get that first huge paycheck and and then it's gone within a year or two because, you know, the reality is you probably didn't have that much money. Even if you were com- coming from a normal family and in the U.S., you know, maybe your family, if you're lucky, had a six figure income, you get that first $10 million check because you got signed to a team and that's more money than you've ever seen in your life. And rightfully so. Most people don't have any idea how to handle that. So it's just crazy that you'd be, you know, I, I just could never see myself even pre Bitcoin. I still could recognize the scam. Right. And it's like, I'll talk to my buddies about this shit. And it's like, you guys don't, don't see that these are obvious scams. It's like, this is, this is no different than any other like old school, you know, affiliate marketing MLM type scams. It's the same, same language that gets used in like Amway. I don't know if you guys know about that company or not, but it's the same, same language. It's crazy. If if you see the analogs, like it makes complete sense. I I guess it's just, it works. So they use the format, but, um, wasn't Drew Brees wrapped up in Amway or was that Advocare? I can't remember if Advocare was also an MLM that was, under the guise of Amway. Like it's hard to keep track of this stuff. I'm not sure to be honest. And once again, I I don't really know. Sports is like the thing I'm the least interested in. So whenever somebody starts talking about it, like unless it's a really popular person, you know, like your Michael Jordans, your Tiger Woods, that type of person, I, I am the last person to ask about that stuff. So um, it wouldn't surprise me because they're going to try to use that social capital to funnel people into their MLM schemes. So it's the same thing with like Herbalife and stuff like that, you know. So, Macro, when you say the the words that they use, do you have any examples of what you're talking about? Um, basically, they hype up the quote opportunity. Um, it's you hear a lot of like, man, you know all your friends, they're not going to understand you. It's basically what they do is they, they funnel you in. They try to create a community that um, comes across like they know something that you don't. And then you need to follow them, funnel your money into them. And basically they're milking you the whole time with this format. It was the, dangling the hope of, oh, well, if you just stay in our group keep funneling money to us, keep listening to our talks, then someday you'll be up here on stage like us and you'll be rich when the reality is 95% of people that didn't get into the pyramid scheme early lose, right? But it's that kind of um, isolation language to ostracize you from your family. Um, I know a lot about this because one of my very good friends from college got pulled into Amway and I was trying to you know help him talk sense into him like hey man they're they're literally going to alienate you from your whole family and unfortunately that's where he's at now it's just him and his girlfriend he doesn't talk to his parents anymore and i think he's probably lost a lot of money but sorry i don't mean to ramble but that's basically what they do is they try to isolate you and then make you think that the people that are telling you hey this is a scam are wrong and um they just continue to do that and until they milk you for basically everything you're worth and 
Um, they do this in a lot of third world countries too, actually. I think Amway's like really targets people in, um, Central America. I think they have like a, a huge building in Mexico. Um, cause a lot of people there have less financial education than, and there's also less regulatory scrutiny on, on them in, in these other countries. So. Yeah, I was more interested in the language being used than, you know, the the MLM or the Amway thing. I do know that uh, a lot of those things have gone through quite a bit of court battles as to whether they're actually legal or not. And yeah. they've been, you know, they've been ruled as legal. So there must be some something there, maybe. Uh, Mickey, what's up? Yeah, so actually, I had an MLM guy try to hook me when I was a lieutenant. And so specifically the language he used was, you know, it was about like building relationships and, and like coaching and mentoring, you know? And so he, he basically, he was like, Hey, I'm a leadership coach. Right. And I, and I can teach you how to be a leadership coach and then we'll all be leadership coaches and we'll do all this shit. Right. But it, but it turns out it was, it was basically just one of those freaking, I, I don't know, Amway things where, okay, he coaches me to, be a leader quote unquote and then I join this community and then you know I can buy things from my own store and then he gets a cut and the guy above him gets a cut and then I coach people and then they start their own stores and then I get a cut of their store and it's just it was it was all this like bullshit language essentially about how yeah, you're creating a community and and you know financial independence and stuff like that. And so it's just really trying to like feed on hope and in finances. I guess he probably thought I was desperate. I don't know. I told him to fuck off though. Mickey, you are violating Alex's rules for swearing. Sorry, I just lifted him a little. <laughs> But yeah, that that's the exact same thing um, that I saw. Let me let me clarify something. That's not a rule. That's like a, a request. We don't have like, you know, I'm not going to try and censor people around here. So if you feel the need to really really let it rip, then you you do your thing. I'm just trying to make the show a little more. Um, what's the word? Not just family friendly, but there are. There are people who are turned off by that kind of stuff who could be very good advocates for Bitcoin and will just simply bug out if um, we're just dropping F-bombs constantly. Oh, yeah. We all know that I'll swear like a sailor. I just had the opportunity to troll Mickey a little bit. Why is it always got to be, you know, reference to sailors swearing <laughs> as if sailors somehow swear more than the rest of you jack wagons? See what I, I did there? I found a really... I was going to say, I would swear a lot, too, if I was stuck on a steel can floating around the ocean for months at a time. Macro. Macro, macro. So I was watching on, in, in regards to the, the, um, the financial illiteracy in the world, you know, I was watching on CNBC this morning. There's this guy on there, uh, John Hope, who is um, the CEO of Operation Hope, which is a um, which is a an institution that that really um, helps people with financial literacy and coaching, that kind of stuff. And the statistics that he was dropping were pretty amazing. Apparently, 
uh, over 40% of those who make uh, $100,000 are living paycheck to paycheck. This is not indicative of um, a society or, uh, you know, that that has financial literacy in it. So, you know, when we point to to places like Central America or, or South America or other places that don't have financial literacy, I, I think we really need to look in our own backyard because there ain't no financial literacy in the United States. I mean, the people here in this room, Bitcoiners, um, tend to be very financial literate, financially literate. And, you know, is that because of Bitcoin or because they were already fan financial, financially literate before they came? I don't know. Certainly Bitcoin uh, uh, sharpens sharpens that spear in any case. So, you know, to say that to say that the, the, the world is not financially literate is true, but uh, I, I think in the United States and and those who I think even having having grown up with privilege myself uh, and around people who who were very privileged, I can tell you that the privileged generation um, oftentimes is the most financially illiterate because they don't have the need or necessity to be that. Yeah. Um, two thoughts here. One, the, uh, I guess I should have clarified, um, at least in the U S I think even the traditionally financially educated, like Keynesian people understand that pyramid schemes are scams. And that's probably where I should have been a little more specific. And then second, I think, um, you know, there's no incentive to really be financially literate for the most part, because if you save in dollars, you just lose over time. Right. So it's led to this place where people are in debt because that's actually how you get ahead in the dollar system. The, the quote, richest people like an Elon, right. They don't actually have a bunch of assets. They have a bunch of debt. So I do think that there's a, um, because of backwards incentives, you get where, you know, financial literacy is, is not rewarded in our current system. So it does, it does make sense to me that even in the U S most people are not financially literate. Wait a minute. Did you just say financial literacy is not rewarded in the current system? Yes. Correct. What do you guys mean by that? Um, traditional financial literacy would be like, you know, spending less than what you make, that kind of thing. Um, I guess is what I'm getting at is it, it doesn't, um, you're not incentivized to save, I guess it is a clearer way of saying it. Does that make sense? Perhaps yeah. financial literacy is, is the wrong term. To yeah. But those are, those are two different things. That's why I, I was confused I, by it. Yeah, no, that that's fair. And mm. I, I, I think that it's probably, probably, there's nothing wrong with being financially literate. What people, I mean, what people are facing and listening to what you were saying before when you're hopping in these these spaces with shitcoiners is is that you've got these people who they basically say, well, they you know they want to they want to win big in the shitcoin and they're going to buy Bitcoin with it, right? Everybody, the end goal is always to buy the Bitcoin. I would sus I suspect that a lot of these VCs. That are doing the that are turning and burning these shit coins and basically pumping and dumping them, they're taking the capital and they're buying Bitcoin. Maybe not all of them, but I bet you a bunch of them are doing exactly that. But that desire to to like hit a home run and then invest it in Bitcoin, that's uh, largely, I suspect, coming from a place of of 
lack and loss and and missed it. It's it, it's a it's the survival loss mentality versus the abundance winning mentality. It's the um they feel like they're behind and they got to try to catch up. And that's the general feeling I think most people have who um are gambling basically. And it's not possible to save money, you know, save your wealth in money because the money is constantly losing purchasing power at an ever accelerating rate. So people have to go out and gamble basically. And incomes don't keep pace with inflation. I was in a space with, I'm not going to say who, but a, a guy who makes a lot of money. And he was basically saying that anybody who's making less than a half a million dollars a year right now, you're basically like the new middle class, which is mind-blowing to me. I saw a really crazy, I'm going to bring it up. I saw a really crazy um, tweet. And hang on, let me grab this. I was in that space, Alex. All right, so you know what I'm talking about. So uh, this is the salary needed to buy a home in the United States of America. And I'm not, this is from Visual Capitalist. You can go check this out if you want. But I'm not saying this to depress anybody. These are the facts, right? And ultimately, by the way, Bitcoin is the solution. So don't get all sad on me. I'm just sharing with you what's going on in the United States of America today. Median price of an American home in 2023 is 371000 requiring an annual pre-tax salary of nearly 100000 to make the payments. And um, also, a person who is earning $100,000 a year cannot afford the minimum mortgage payment to buy a home in nearly half of America's biggest cities. So in other words, hundred grand is like, you're, you're basically middle class, low end of middle class, maybe even like middle class, middle class is probably around a quarter million now. Upper end of middle Alex. class is good. Oh, I was going to say, I remember when the Porsche uh, 9, uh, 959 came out, the greatest supercar ever up to that point. It was a $200,000 car. This was in 1989, I believe. $200,000 car. Uh, and a, a price so astronomical that nobody could even approach it. Now, the, the, the most expensive supercars are in the 3 to $4 million range. I mean, that, you know, you can equate that. It's the same thing with housing. It's the same thing with everything. It is just insane how much more things cost for what is effectively the same thing, right? Because the supercar of 1989, the supercar of supercars, is equatable effectively to the supercar of supercars of 2023, it's just the, the the technology is different, but it's still this leading edge technology. And it's just the same with housing. It's the same thing. A house is still a house, but look at the cost differential. Supercars, supercars. And how many like normal cars are $80,000 easily? In 1989, I think a normal car was uh, between 12, I want to stay between 12 and 20,000 was a normal car. Point being, 
not everybody has the opportunity to make a half a million dollars or more. I mean, a lot of people who, you know, make a substantial income in today's economy are basically still struggling. And for people who are making less than a hundred grand a year, that must be absolutely brutal. So what I'm saying is, again, this is not to be depressing. What I'm saying is you have to find leverage and it's, it's best to not gamble in things that, in my opinion, are, are the equivalent of being involved in the U.S. dollar system. Like everybody's involved in the U.S. dollar system to a degree because we're kind of have to. It's the system. It's, well, this is late stage fiat is where we are today. But what I would suggest is like Bitcoin, in my opinion, is the most powerful asymmetric trade in the history of the human race. I, I was talking to this one guy. He's a TradFi guy. Very, very wealthy dude coming into the space. He knows a lot of very, very wealthy dudes. And um, he's, I mean, he's got a lot of, uh, he's bringing a lot of what I would consider bias and baggage with him into the space. But, you know, this was the dude that was saying, if you're making less than a half a million dollars a year, you're, you're, you may be deluding yourself into thinking you're actually middle class, but you're on the very low end of that. And uh, you got to find leverage. He said, I think Bitcoin might be like a once in a hundred year kind of an opportunity to me. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't think so, man. I actually think it's like a once in a human species kind of an opportunity. We have never seen an, a, a thing that behaves like this ever as human beings going all the way back to the beginning. We've never seen anything like this. Fire, the wheel, electricity. You know, money is the glue that holds a civilization together. And I think Terrence was saying this earlier. We've never had Terence's expression was, we've never had real money before. And I might modify that a little bit is we've never had a glue that doesn't fall apart before. Bitcoin's endurance, Bitcoin's incorruptibility, undebasability, all those factors about it are the game changer. And like we, we have all these inventions that serve different purposes. We build we, we invent the automobile, the, the Ford Model T. It gets to the point where it's a Porsche 959 or whatever those other things are right now, um, which, are very, which are very different, but keep on improving. And they all have their strengths and weaknesses. We invent housing. We first move into caves. Then we build things out of wood. Then we build it out of bricks. And all of these things keep advancing. With Bitcoin, I think we've, and let me make the point with money, we use seashells or gold coins or whatever, but the problem with every one of those monetary technologies we've ever had in the past has been inflation, ultimately, whether it's through debasement or money printing or someone figuring out how to make more of it, even though it was initially a scarce good, or or somebody seizing all of it, and these two vulnerabilities have led to the money failing to do what it needs to do to hold the civilization together. It is why most empires that have crumbled, crumbled. They, they crumbled because they became weak because their money became weak. This is, there's lots of people who've studied this and pointed it out. And now we have this money that can't be made weak. Uh, 
And I think that's what's really extraordinary about it. And the more you use it and the more desirable it is, the stronger it gets. With all the other forms of money we've ever had, the incentives have always existed to weaken the money. Whoever had any position of power over the money got away with weakening it somewhat, printing more of it, debasing the coins a little bit, diluting the coins, all these sorts of things. Um, Here we actually have money that isn't debasable. And so I think that this is why you say, Alex, um, or why I agree with you, at least. It may not be the same reasons for you, but it's why I completely agree with you. This is the once. It it only needs to happen once in human civilization. It hadn't happened before Bitcoin. It's happened now. We have something to hold our civilization together that doesn't come apart and and will last for the ages. The the mechanism of chaining blocks of Bitcoin together is an irreversible and indestructible process. It's it's really extraordinary. And when you think about it, it means Bitcoin can be here forever as long as it's useful. And why would it cease to be useful? Why would money cease to be useful? It's a very different state of human condition than than anything we've ever known up until now. So I, I'm with well, you, Alex. And, and, and Tomer, to that point too, it's, it's particularly beneficial to society that has um, varying diverse factions and ways of thought, right? Because like when you have a, when you have a money that functions in a way that everybody can agree upon, makes logical sense and provides value and, and service, um, these groups can all have their different cultural opinions and political affiliations and whatever, but it provides a bridge <clears throat> to uh, collaboration and cooperation um, that is completely different from fiat currencies because they're completely beholden to uh, the political affiliations and, and re- like religious affiliations of whoever has the, the control over the money printer, right? And they can use the they can use that printer to whatever means they deem as necessary or or um, or justified. Uh, and then that that money ends up being corrupted by whatever those affiliations are. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say I shared in the nest. Uh, I, I've I've written a bunch of articles about this, and and there's some people who are out making videos of of the articles I've written in the past. So there's a new ten minute video, and I know a lot of people prefer to watch the videos than uh, than read the whole lot lengthy articles. So uh, there's a new video out. Um, based off my article called Bitcoin and Empire for Us All, which actually talks about this. It talks about why empires rise and fall and why we have a new empire uh, in Bitcoin uh, that's an empire that could last for everyone forever and serve everyone. So uh, bookmark it and take a look uh, when the show is over, when you have 10 free minutes. Isn't the money working exactly as it was designed to work to benefit the the few that have the controls and this the the reason that bitcoin is something that they fear is because of its egalitarian and uncorruptible nature does that sum up what you were saying tomar well you, you can come at it from two perspectives right like one is you you just say civilization itself is a good thing and human beings have been struggling for the entirety of human history to form a civilization from from tribal cultures to to nation to city states to nation states to, you know all this escalation and it keeps fail like we haven't come up with one you may argue well we actually haven't tried tried to come up with one but but i think that there are people who have tried to come up with with an uncollapsing civilization 
and there but there have been weaknesses vulnerabilities failures in it including people who managed to rise to the top of the leadership structures of that civilization who then cause it to collapse right like it's this expectation that we will have great leaders who sustain civilization that ironically is what when poor leaders get into those positions that cause the failure of the civilization that causes that's actually what i've been thinking about this entire time you said that because the question that comes to my mind is did the money going bad cause the problem or did the money going bad cause the character of the people to go bad and that's what caused the problem yeah i think that's where we are today right and the money going bad caused the kind of people who succeeded in achieving the leadership positions of the civilization to be bad people, right? Like it, it, there's just so much temptation, so much power to print money, to direct it into your own pockets, to, to serve a political career that, that caters to special interests and then retire from your political career and get an appointment. Like all of these things, because the money is, because the pol- because the government can direct the money, can direct wealth, um, creates the incentive for corruption. And it happens, whether you describe it as quickly or slowly, it happens over the course of decades uh, and sometimes even centuries. And so it is is a relatively slow process where you can't see it uh, so immediately that you can reverse it. And many of these corrupting events are irreversible because they have, by the time they happen, it's because the whole money was broken, right? It was like when we went off the gold standard completely, it was because we don't defaulted on, the, there wasn't enough gold in Fort Knox to pay off the debts, right? Like it was too late by the time we discovered it. So, so then we find ourselves in another system with a whole new set of vulnerabilities and it takes a few decades to exploit those vulnerabilities to, to the point where we're at right now. But, you know, my, gold was leaving Fort Knox or dollars were being printed uh, with a claim to be backed by gold at Fort Knox for a long time when that was no longer true. And then when the truth was finally revealed, it was it was too late. Nobody yeah. can print Bitcoin. Nobody can, you know, as, as long as you don't accept the promise of paper Bitcoin, you're not you're not getting ripped off and and the distinction you know and a few distinctions between bitcoin and gold is it's easy to take custody of bitcoin it's easy to secure bitcoin it's easy to send bitcoin like none of those things are true about gold um and and i think that's especially at a global scale right like you know i I might be able to keep a few thousand dollars worth of gold and keep it in some coins and walk to a local retail merchant and hand him some gold and maybe he'll have some equipment where he can validate its authenticity and that i haven't clipped it and that i haven't debased it and you know but with bitcoin all of this is so easy and and it doesn't matter the size of the transaction whether it's worth a dollar or a billion dollars it's the exact same process and it's instantaneous and it's global and it's 100 percent accurate We'll go to you in one second, Mac. Right, real quick thought here is that the cancel on effect because it, it the whole system basically siphons the wealth of the entire population into the hands of a small number of people who are closely positioned to the money printer. And you can think about, about this in terms of all of these companies that flourish in this environment, they're close to the money printer. You know, the the pharma companies made hundreds of billions of dollars. Why? Because there was, ins- I mean, the government was literally became a pharma salesman for them. 
Like they were selling and forcing huge portions of the population to consume their, and then using taxpayer dollars to pay for it all in many ways. Um, this is all cancel on effect stuff. Net effect is it hoovers up the wealth of the entire population, pushes it towards this small group of people. Everybody else gets poorer. So this effect where I'm talking about, where it's like, well, you know, when I was a kid, if you could make a hundred grand, you were wealthy, wealthy. That was a long time ago. Nowadays, you make a hundred grand, you're at the bottom of the middle-class ladder, basically, I think, right now. Um, and yeah, the, the, the humans don't do well when you remove hope. That's what it comes down to. This is the reason why you're seeing so much mental illness. You're seeing so much of this woke mind virus stuff going on. It's why you're seeing so much um, of the younger generation looking at the entire system. And they're just like, you guys have screwed this thing up so badly that there's no future for us. And they're pissed. And so this is where this whole postmodern resentment thing comes from. This is where Marxism flourishes. This is where they have this seething, underlying rage, feeling like uh, I'm not in control of my future. There's no hope. They're very nihilistic. So that creates an environment that's ripe for civil instability. And it's like, we got to fix this problem, guys. All this stuff is linked together, and it's all because of the money is broken. That was beautiful, Alex. That was that was beautiful. It it that's that's the entire essence right there of of Bitcoin and the solution that Bitcoin offers. And what you're basically saying is that we're forced with these political currency units to to consume rather than create right we we have to spend rather than save and we we gamble we can't plan and it's kind of like what macro was talking about earlier was sort of the hustle culture and he was talking about all these nfl players getting involved in these you know crypto scams and multi-level marketing things and you know i think you know, I might be stereotyping a little bit, but it's it's part of the culture of how they became professional athletes, and or, or they look up to you know Tom Brady, who's associated with FTX, and um, which is still surprising with everything that's been revealed with that, and Sam Bankman-Fried and Alex Pshinsky and all of this stuff. That that you know, we see what these people are still doing and growing up in this fiat world. You know, we you know, ever since we're born, like it's all, it's always been about trust. It's like until Bitcoin comes along, we realize like, oh, it's, it's the trust that is failing us. And it's, you know, and as Tomer was saying too, it's like the money, the money's broken. It makes the people broken. It changes our incentives. And I don't know. I just, I just love hearing everyone talk about this. It's, um, it's very inspiring of where, of what we have and that we do have some hope. Yeah, well, uh, why don't you go macro? I jumped on you. Sorry. Government issued money is the is the most basic promise in a society. You know, aside from aside from having a justice system that that doesn't trample your rights and um, doesn't take advantage of you and make you the enemy. And you know, it reminds me of that that one part of of that. I think it's Atlas Shrugged, maybe. 
by Ayn Rand. I don't remember which book, but basically was saying that, you know, when you find yourself in a system where the group of people that are advantaged by it, that's siphoning all the money and the laws are, are written to protect them against you. And you are no longer protected by the law and by the government, but you become basically the enemy at their whim. That's a very dangerous situation. You have, you know, that's where the trust of the people is broken. And having money you can't trust is part of that. It's very foundational to a society. Macro. Macro, macro. <laughs> um, well, the conversation moved on a bit, so if uh, you don't want to go back to this, fine. But um, I was listening to the – there was a safety interview, Lynn Alden, recently as part of her – her book release. And one of the things that she highlighted, which I'm, I've kind of gone back and forth with in my head, I think it's an interesting, you know, observation. But then if you look at history further back, this was happening prior, but they basically had a, a pretty detailed conversation about the telegraph basically being the guaranteed end to the gold standard because information could move much faster than final settlement could. And there's been a discrepancy between those two for, you know, the better part of 200 years now. Um, I think I, I empathize with that thought, but then, you know, to your point earlier in the conversation, there's been times in the past where like with Rome, the money broke there too, because the culture broke first. So it's like, what is mm, it? The money that I don't necessarily agree with that. Was it the culture first or was it the money first? Well, and, and that's what I was just about to say. Was it the culture or the money? Because if you look at a bunch of different examples, they almost seem to happen in parallel. I mean, granted, when it's over a couple hundred year time scale, like the collapse of Rome was and the debasement of that currency took a couple hundred years, it's, it's a slow grind where maybe it's a feedback loop that happens and maybe the feedback loops are faster now because information travels way faster. I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about a decent amount recently. And, um, you know, that conversation was like, I don't know that you necessarily need the information traveling super quick to break your final settlement layer, but maybe it just makes it happen faster. I don't know if you guys had thoughts on that. Cause like the culture's downstream of that, I think, but you also have to have people who are compromised to keep breaking it worse over time. Well, if you think about it, um, monetary or value transfer is the transfer of information. So as the, as the capability of information transfer goes up, so does the exchange of value and money. So I, I would I would definitely say that like now we have the capability of because that money moves faster um, and farther, right? Because it's global now. Um, I think that these feedback loops, I, I definitely agree, these feedback loops can develop and progress and evolve and mature much faster than they would have back in that time frame. And I think for me, the kind of, I guess, mental note or takeaway from it all and, and thinking about it a lot is like the, the final settlement piece is really, you know, obviously <laughs> the, the most important thing. And, and as long as people are not accepting a claim on Bitcoin and, and there's enough people that are, are actually saying, no, I, I want it sent to me, you know, to my wallet. I don't want your, your Coinbase claim. Then, you know, as long as enough of a irate minority, like the people in this room are saying, nope, we want final settlement. We're not going to, 
allow you to give us some sort of claim for whatever it is you're trying to pay us for, then the system uh, should should be able to be robust enough to last. But I think, um, you know, it, this kind of, I was originally spurred to think about this more as I was in a space um, with Gary Cardone and I was talking to him about, he basically was holding all of his on an exchange, he said. And I was like, You're, you have claims, you don't have Bitcoin. And we went back and forth on it for a while. But I think it, as more people come in, it's still super important to talk about self-custody because um, that's really the the key to making sure that the system does actually last. Because you could do paper claims, and I do agree that I think eventually they all collapse like they have been over the past five years every time somebody's tried to do it. But that's only because enough people are saying, no, <laughs> those claims are not actual Bitcoin. Send me real Bitcoin. And then, you know, kind of like the U.S. is dealing with right now, eventually those claims go to zero. So, All right. Let's shift gears a little bit. we got about 20 minutes in. After about 20 minutes, we have um, Matt Hill joining us this morning. He's the founder of Start9. And uh, we'll be digging in with him in a little bit. I want to make it basically a group conversation. If anybody has questions for these guys, um, prep them. You're welcome to come up here and ask them questions as well. But man, I hear some great stuff about Start Nine Gear. I haven't used it, but people who run their stuff, man, they are they say great things. So looking for getting an update there. But before we do, let's talk a little bit. We've got about 10 minutes. Let's talk about the stuff that we're seeing right now that uh is interesting in terms of what's next for Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is the solution. We've talked a lot about why broken money is part of the problem, if not the problem. <clears throat> We're all here because we agree Bitcoin is the solution, probably. I think it is. Um, but this next clip I want to play for you guys. Uh, you guys all know who this person is, but the stuff he's saying about the way corporations have to operate today is mind-blowing so jacob if you're ready let's roll it joining me now michael strategies executive chairman michael saylor michael i got to give you props my man so august 10th 2020 micro strategies adopts his bitcoin strategy the experts called you a fool thus far you're crushing everything i mean i'm looking at the list even Bitcoin you're crushing, but some of these other known, the S&P you're destroying, Google, Microsoft, Apple, you're beating them all by easily, Oracle. So take us back. If you, take us back to when you made this decision. You knew you would be ridiculed. Why did you do it? Thanks, Charles, for having me. Um, <clears throat> you know, most corporations are being torn apart by these twin forces of inflation uh, from the government and then technology-driven deflation. So if you're a Main Street company, you're forced to fight for your survival with one hand tied behind your back. If you're going to keep up with uh, the Magnificent Seven, you're going to have to grow your revenues and cash flows 20% a year or faster ad infinitum. You know, so the seven companies that generate all the shareholder returns or 7,000 companies can't keep up. 
What we did in August of 2020 was recognize that there's no way we're going to outgrow Google and Microsoft and, and Apple computer as a mid-sized software company. So we started looking to do an acquisition of a high growth digital monopoly of our own. And we realized that Bitcoin is like a high tech dominant digital network growing right. at 40 or 50 percent a year. And so we bought it. It's kept growing 40 or 50 percent a year. And now we're using our balance sheet to grow the company as well as our P&L. Uh, let's talk about the business side of it, the, uh, the, uh, the AI side of it. It's all the rage, obviously. What is MicroStrategies doing with respect to artificial intelligence? You know, we're the first BI company to incorporate artificial intelligence into our product. And so we're feeding it to our customers. They love it. It allows them to build applications faster and it gives them answers faster. And AI is both making our product better, but it's also accelerating a conversion from on-premises to the cloud. So we see it as a great growth driver for the business. Michael, you tweeted a very compelling tweet on November 4th about Bitcoin offering corporations an innovative strategy to preserve the capital, sort of what you just talked about. But what I thought was even more compelling is you said to escape the destructive cycle of expensive acquisitions, buybacks, dividends, and debt. Those are all the traditional ways companies are told they can reward, share, reward shareholders. You're saying skip all of that and go straight to Bitcoin. Yeah, what I'm saying is, uh, you know, decapitalizing the company by giving the capital back in a buyback or dividing it out and paying the tax on the dividend or engaging in dilutive acquisitions or pursuing breakneck growth initiatives that may or may not work. Um, all of these things are part of the conventional corporate finance playbook, but they don't work. Ninety nine percent of the companies are failing using that. And they do it because if they just hold their capital in government securities, they generate 3% after tax right. and the cost of capital is 12 to 15%. So Bitcoin is the solution because you can buy Bitcoin, ride a 20 to 40% uh, tax deferred appreciation. You can beat the cost of capital and pretty soon you're firing on all cylinders because your balance sheet is generating investor returns as well as your P&L. Uh, before I let you go, Bitcoin on a tear right now. Uh, what do you think? And over the next year, what could be some of the drivers that take it higher? Look, uh, the supply and demand are in balance right now. But after the halving in April, uh, the supply gets cut in half. And after the set of spot ETFs right, come you can online, cut it there. the demand's got at least double. So we've heard all of the uh, the arguments for what might happen with Bitcoin over here in the next six months, year, whatever the case may be. But uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I heard him explain this, this is not something I've actually ever heard him say before. Maybe he has, but I've never heard it. And I thought some of these points were pretty profound. Uh, <laughs> he's basically saying the standard way of doing business isn't going to work if your objective is to increase the value, the share value of your company and to increase the capital value of your company. That's pretty mind-blowing. Does anybody have any thoughts from that? Well, I mean, I, I'll weigh in if, if it's quiet. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah. I mean, as someone who once worked in a large corporation, you know, the problem, I, well, this is what we did. We got involved in acquisitions, which were often disasters. They were, they were dilutive. 
they took a lot of energy they wasted the company's capital they leveraged the balance sheet we got involved in share buybacks same thing it was this it weakened the company and all all of these things i think actually what they they almost always do is weaken a company they take the management team they distract them from managing the business and put them onto managing the cash flow of the business or managing another business that they've now acquired and have to find synergies with if they're allowed to buy companies that are competitors and offering alternative services in the market, usually one of these competitors disappears or prices increase and consumers end up being the losers uh, in the in the whole equation. And it's and you realize you're doing all of this because it's tax inefficient to pay a dividend. You pay a dividend, you cause a taxable event for your shareholders. You save the money. You've got your bank, your analysts criticize you for not doing anything with the capital and not returning it to shareholders. You do an acquisition, you, you end up destroying shareholder value in the long run. So all of these things, as Michael Saylor says, in the traditional corporate finance playbook, they keep people in corporate finance very busy and they keep bankers who are involved in all of these activities earning fees, but they're not really creating value either for the company or shareholders or for society at large and and uh and so sailor's alternative here that says hold on to reliable long-term capital that you can use when you need it that you don't end up strip mining your your capital base through acquisitions of other companies or your own company's shares is is an alternative and so far uh, it's it's turned out quite well for micro strategy i think it'll be really interesting to see how it how and if we see large companies in the long term starting to be able to hold on to capital and viewing that as a sound financial policy. Like you have to overcome everything that they teach you in business school with the capital asset allocation model that basically says take on as much debt as you can to within a safety level. I think we'll end up seeing maybe a lot less, a different attitude towards how much debt people take on and what debt represents when you have a money that isn't debt. I don't have the answers as to what that will look like yet, but it'll look very different from what things currently look like. Uh, just real quick, I shared a link in the nest. It's a long form conversation, basically talking exactly about what Michael Saylor was talking about in that clip you just shared. It's like an hour and a half talk when he was on the Bitcoin layer recently. And he dives a lot deeper into it if y'all are interested. In. Oh, heck yeah. Tomer, thanks you for sharing all that. I, I agree with you, and it's nice to hear it from your perspective. I think it's fascinating that Sailor is on Fox News talking to, uh, I guess it's Charles Payne about this, and basically laying out the playbook. For corporations, he's like, look, unless you're part of the magnificent seven is what he calls them, and you're growing 20% a year forever, you will never keep up. And what that means is 7,000 companies out there are either forced to decapitalize their company doing stupid shit, just like Tomer said, or you can buy Bitcoin. Like, that is massively profound to me. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm reading into that, but that's what I got from that conversation. I'm like, Sailor is trying to teach these other seven companies, this is how you survive moving forward. That is mind-blowing to me. 
Tomer, did you listen to that um, that podcast that I shared? Because he actually is not talking, yet. He talks not exactly I, I, what he talked about in that, like almost verbatim. He um, talks about that and then goes into that exact process of having to do acquisitions, basically diluting your intellectual capital within a company, um, dragging you down over time. And then he saw Bitcoin as an alternative to that because they were either going to have to acquire a bunch of other companies to basically make their stock look better um, or they were going to just have to keep sitting on their melting ice cube. But anyways, I just it's kind of crazy because he said almost the exact same thing that you just said. Well, it's a story. It's an, unfortunately a story that's played itself out thousands of times over. Right. These seven thousand other companies are all involved in mergers and acquisitions and share buybacks and recapitalizations and, you know, all these different structures that are intended to somehow through what's called financial engineering, create value. But if you think about it, like you, you really create value by offering a service to the market, not through financially mixing up things behind the scenes that, that don't affect the quality of your product. And that might in fact, reduce the quality of your product because now you're hamstrung or financially constrained. And that's what all of this financial engineering stuff ends up doing. It financially constrains a company through the issuance of debt or through the share buybacks, which are often financed through the issuance of debt to have less slack, less access to capital than they otherwise would. Why do they do this? Well, they know that that capital is a melting ice cube to use Michael Saylor's description or they're greedy. Right? Like you're never going to stop the fact that people want to somehow, if they're compensating shares, increase the price of their shares. But when they do through financial engineering, they're not doing it by fulfilling the company's mission of what, who they serve as a customer. They're doing it by focusing you know, by ignoring the customer and focusing on the securities opportunities, and 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 it takes your eye off the ball of uh, of, of of running your business for the purpose that the business exists for. It's a bit of a perversion when we say maximizing share. When we think maximizing shareholder value is achieved through financial manipulation, financial engineering, rather than maximizing shareholder value through maximizing customer value. Yeah, it's a perversion of incentives, just like we've been talking about. You have broken money, you have broken financial incentives, you have a broken system, corrupted system, and... uh Instead of doing what's good for the customer, you have this these management teams that are distracted and doing all this other kind of nonsense. It's mind blowing. Mickey. Yes, it's it's reminding me of my macroeconomics class back in college where you know this this financial engineering exists at the nation state level too. Um you know, it's like a country's currency gets too strong then their exports go down because it gets too expensive for other countries to buy their stuff. And so, you know, at, at the macro layer too, nation states are participating in this financial engineering, you know, through interest rates and money printing and stuff to make sure that their currencies never get too strong. And, and so it's just, it's like this whole global phenomenon at every level and I think, you know, if people get on the Bitcoin standard, it sort of, it sort of creates this global com- 
not competition, but cooperation level where everyone is sort of playing by the same rules again. Yeah. Uh, some people may not have heard the term, but uh, one of my mentors called it the race to the bottom where every country, every central bank in the world essentially is competing with each other to make their currency crappier, faster <laughs> so that they can have some semblance of an export market. It's ridiculous. Right. And it's, it's all relative too. And so like to, to an extent, the central bank only had to raise higher than, you know, maybe like the ECB to make the U S dollar collapse less slowly than the euro. And so, you know, potentially a lot of our inflation was exported to, to other countries with, you know, weaker currencies like the ECB who are in weaker positions. So Fed raises to seven, ECB can only get to what, like two or 3%. Otherwise they'll implode. And so since US dollar is seven, you know, foreign, foreign currencies get converted into dollars seeking yield. U.S. dollar gets stronger relative to the other fiat currencies, and so our inflation looks potentially less bad than it than it does than than in actuality. Yeah, you know, we're essentially exporting our inflation to the rest of the world. That's a deep rabbit hole. We could probably spend hours talking about it. But I want to recommend um, welcome up Matt Hill to the stage. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Hey guys, happy to be here. I'm on the uh, Start9 account, but it is me. Awesome. Uh, it's been a little while. I think you were on the show with us about a year ago and uh, busily beavering away, working away, building Start9. Um, I have heard lots of great things. I've not used any of the Start9 stuff yet myself, but I do know people who have and they, they rave about it. They're like, it's the best. So um, congrats for that. Like some of these folks are pretty, well, they're pretty experienced with different options in the market, so to speak. Yeah, thanks. And you're right, a lot has happened in the last year since I was on this show. So I'm happy to fill you all in on what we've been up to and answer any questions people might have. But yeah, one of the most rewarding things um, about my life is the feedback we get from what we do at Start9. Um, we get an incredible amount of support and outpouring of uh, appreciation and from our customers. Um, you know, one of the things most people are surprised about when they actually try our stuff um, is that it works. <laughs> and they seem very surprised <laughs> by that. You know, we're in like a really nascent technological space, just broadly speaking, you know, um, these decentralized distributed systems and running private servers and clouds. And it's just not a well-developed um, technological um, industry. And so when people try something out and it, and it works well, and then they get some great customer support to back it, um, they're actually just very surprised and very appreciative. And um, yeah, so it's, it's cool. It's great. Very good. So if it's all right with you, I'd like to just keep it super casual. People up here, if you guys have questions or just want to converse with Matt about what these guys have been up to, uh, we're just going to make it wide open. If you're in the audience and you've used Star 9 stuff and you're willing to come up and talk about it a little bit, we'd love to have you. Uh, Peter, go ahead. Um, first of all, uh, Matt, I'm a, I'm a Start 9 user. Um, I'm a boomer. Uh, and... Um, I had a great experience with you, actually. I don't know if you remember me or not on the uh, on Telegram on the chat, but I was the guy that 
um, I, I'm good at breaking anything. And I was the guy that that we were just running into problem after problem after problem with my Mac OS and the the start nine and getting it up and running. I think you spent about four hours with me. And I, I really do appreciate um, everything you guys have done. I, I do want to compliment you. Um, I also uh, uh, converse quite a bit with Portland Hoddle, if you know who he is. And he was amazed at the speed of the Start9. I have the Embassy Pro. He was amazed at the speed of it. Unfortunately, I don't utilize it as uh, as well as I could. Um, and I am uh, uh, I'm wondering when you, you guys were talking about coming out with a with an update so that uh, Tor would not have to be used um, on uh, on your on the machine that you're connecting to the. Uh, to the node, and I'm wondering uh, if that if that update is still coming out any time in the future. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, I do remember the interaction, um, and yeah, I mean, part of the challenge of what we do is that we have to interact with, interoperate with a variety of other technologies that do not prioritize or even consider our use case, right? So your MacBooks and your Windows machines and your home routers are often working against us um, in in ways that are not easy to resolve. <laughs> and so a lot of what we do is not only building our own technology, but understanding the adjacent technologies um, sufficiently that we can explain um, how to you know, configure them uh, so that they'll they'll interact with your server well. And a lot of our roadmap until now and going forward is um, creating better better bridges and and um, integrations with these adjacent technologies. Um, sometimes it's working so heavily against us that we actually are throwing in the towel um, and doing it ourselves. So, and this will dovetail into your later question around, you know, sort of ditching Tor and making these network connections smoother and more reliable. Um, so, like, Start9 is going to be putting out a router um, next year. And um, we haven't, you know, released any of the specs or strategies around that yet. But the reason for this is because in order to make, you know, streamlined, reliable network connections from a server that's in your home to devices potentially all around the world, not just your own, but potentially to your followers or customers or employees, if you're using your server for business or content purposes, they all need to access the server, which is in your home. And it's behind your NAT, which is, you know, uh, your, your ISP is controlling internet access. And there's all these, you know, <laughs> technologies that most people don't think about. Uh, sitting in between your server and all the devices around the world that need to communicate with it in a variety of ways. And then there's the whole security aspect of that as well and privacy that needs to be considered. And this is not just a thing people do. This is not normal. And so it hasn't been considered by the router companies, the modem companies, the ISPs. In fact, they discourage this behavior. And so we just sort of have to take it into our own hands and bypass them. Um, and that's fine, right? It's um, it's necessary and um, it's definitely doable. It's just not easy. So coming down the pipeline, aside from just a router product, um, is going to be 
streamlined ClearNet configuration, as well as VPN access, um, but not just private VPN access. We also have a really cool feature coming that will be a really zero configuration um, cloud-based WireGuard reverse proxy that you can use and others can use to access resources on your server in such a way that it does not even expose your home IP address. So for instance, you'll be able to host a blog on your StartOS server from your home on a ClearNet domain that you control something like, you know, blog.matthill.net um, and in such a way that it will not even expose your home IP to anyone visiting it. And you're not trusting any third parties because you can run your own cloud-based reverse proxy or you can use somebody else's cloud-based uh, WireGuard proxy and pay them over Lightning Network. This is all coming in the next major release of StartOS. Awesome. And I just want to say that um, I was following the Start9 docs, which have pictures. And, you know, I'm a pop-up book kind of guy, so pictures are great. And it turned out that what I was seeing and what the pictures were telling me that I should be saying, seeing were different. And that's when I went to the, the Start9 Telegram page for, for help. And um, Matt was very, very patient with me. And uh, actually, I remember at one point in the conversation, he was like, wow, I've never seen that before. I don't know why it's doing that. So hopefully this, uh, this experience he had with me was helpful for, for the Start9 team to be able to, uh, when, they, when they encounter this again, to be able to quickly solve it for individuals. Yeah, we're constantly learning new, new ways in which Apple and Microsoft and everyone else is trying to fuck us over and prevent what we're doing. Constantly, every new release of <laughs> iOS, every wow. new release of iOS basically breaks something. <laughs> right, mostly around self-hosted certificates. Right, when your your own root certificate authority, uh, browsers hate you. Apple hates you. Google hates you. You're not supposed to be your own authority in this world. Um, and so they enable it primarily for corporate use case, right? Businesses sort of put their foot down and they're like, no, we are going to provide our own certificate authorities. These are big enterprises. And so they have to build it into things like iOS, Android, Windows, Mac OS. But it's not, it's, it's, it's expected to be extremely technical, difficult to achieve, and not for the plebs right? Like being your own certificate authority, stuff like that is, is not for you. It's, it's for, you know, certain corporate elites and, and that's it. But the very fact that these devices and their operating systems support it um, means that we can leverage it. They just make it really hard <laughs> and they keep changing it. So it's just something we have to keep up with. And it really has nothing to do with our tech, right? This is us trying to interoperate with tech that people have and need. And and one last comment I want to make when when people talk about downloading Bitcoin Core and it, oh it's going to take a day or two and blah blah blah. I think it took 6 hours on the Embassy Pro. Oh there's that would be shocking. Uh you you're definitely the record holder if it took 6 hours, but 12 I would believe. <laughs> I guess it would depend upon your, you know, your bandwidth or not. No, the 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 pro slash pure, as it's now called, the server pure, um, is going to be bottlenecked at the CPU. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, 
I would love to dig into that. Twelve hours would be believable, but very fast. I, I think the six you may have you may have uh, looked at the clock wrong. <laughs> Otherwise, again, you shattered a record. So, congrats. I'd like to dig into the hardware here in a minute, but um, one question I have for you about the router you were talking about is: is it are you is it meant to connect directly to the ISP, or is this something you would put behind the ISP's router? Yeah. So. Um, no, it's meant to it's meant to replace the router modem tandem that is provided by ISPs. Um, do not use those if you can avoid it. Um, in some cases, they are giving carte blanche access to your ISP to every device on your home network, including the ability to intercede traffic over the LAN. They're extremely insecure, um, and you should you should do anything you can to not use them. Um, for fiber connections, it gets even more confusing because um, they're fucking with the terminology. So when you get a fiber connection, they say, okay, here's your modem, right? They call it a modem. And then in, in the traditional cable world, right, there's a modem and then there's a router. There's two devices, right? The modem is your connection to the internet. And the router is what manages your and creates and manages your local area network. And recently, like Comcast, for instance, they create a modem router tandem device. It's a single device, but it is dually functioning as both a modem and a router. Okay, That's the cable world. In the fiber world, there's only one device necessary, and they call it a modem but it's actually a router. <laughs> I don't know why they made this choice. Somebody somewhere in some room decided that they wanted to do away with the term router and just be like, okay, you need your modem and then that does everything. But it's, it's not. They've actually done away with the modem. Fiber goes directly to the router. And so you can replace your ISP's quote modem with your own router if you're doing fiber. Um, in most cases. In some cases, like CenturyLink, I believe, uh, for residential, sometimes provides you with a device um, that is like necessary, like you can't even get internet to your place unless you use their device, in which case you can set up a router downstream of that device and then do some configurations to try to like limit their access to your um, downstream network. It's all a mess. It's a big mess. Yeah, it seems to me like as time has progressed, like the big ISPs are basically creating um, situations where you have to use their equipment. Like you literally can't turn your internet on unless you have their equipment. And uh, it's pretty creepy. So aside from some very extreme cases, what I realized um, as we were going down this rabbit hole is that um, you almost always can get out of their equipment, but they bury it. You have to like, so for, for start nine, for instance, what we had to do was we had to call our ISP and like get the third tier person on the phone in order for them to give us a code, like a secret code that we could then use on our own router, which would then dial out to their thing and transfer ownership of the internet connection. It was like some a crazy obscure so thing. Wild. Yeah, it's like some crazy obscure thing. Um, but but if you call them and you fight hard enough, you generally can not use their equipment, but they don't make it easy. 
because they want that access. I mean, that's the whole point. With their device in your home, it's their home. Chris. Hey, thanks, Alex. Uh, uh, hi, Matt. Um, just firstly, uh, I'm a Raspberry Pi man, so I haven't used the Start9, but I, I, I love what you guys um, have done. I've heard loads of people say that it's you know super convenient, which I, I think is great for adoption. Um, there's there's a couple of questions I have it, um, in terms of like updates to Core. One of one of the benefits of using um, Core is you can kind of choose the version that you want to use based on you know the um, the features and functionality that come with each version so how one one question is how do you handle um, updates do you have automated updating or do you have protections to prevent automated updating is my first question and then second question is in terms of knowing what version they're on and and, and from a privacy and security perspective what what kind of um, protections do you have in place for users in terms of any calls out from the um, the Start Nine Two centralized services that you guys might have? Cool, I'll handle those three one at a time. So the first one wasn't actually a question; it was a statement about the Pi. Um, so Start OS um, is is just a Linux based operating system that has builds for uh, x86, ARM, and Raspberry Pi specific builds. So you absolutely can run StartOS on a Raspberry Pi. Now, if you're intending to use the device for Bitcoin, we don't recommend using the Raspberry Pi. Um, even if you were doing it on core directly, the Pi is very rapidly becoming obsoleted. You can still kind of get away with using an 8 gig Pi if you also have a fast SSD and a very high quality cord connecting the SSD to the Pi, you can still kind of like get away with it. But even that is going to um, come up against a brick wall in about the next year, assuming the UTXO set continues to grow at the insane rates that it has been growing at. So as that set gets bigger, um, read-write speeds to disk become increasingly important. And if you don't have fast read-write to disk, which you can't have with a Raspberry Pi because it's going over the USB 3.0 port, um, then what happens is the it, it gets bottlenecked at read-write and starts building up cache, which fills up your RAM, which is why the 4-gig Pi died about six months ago, and the 8-gig Pi is like just now starting to die because the UTXO set has just exceeded 8 gigs. So it's filling up the entire RAM of the device it wouldn't fill up the entire rim of the device if you had a really fast disk. So it's the combination of disk and RAM. You need one of those to be really good. And then the other one doesn't need to be as good. But on the Raspberry Pi, unfortunately, they're both not so good. <laughs> and so Pi users are just going to have an increasingly tough time. So that said, you can run StartOS on a Pi and you are encouraged to use it for all sorts of non-Bitcoin things. It'll work great for you but don't use it to run Bitcoin. That's our stance. Um, number two was around updates. So in StartOS, uh, you can choose what version of a service you want to install. So for instance, if you install StartOS Fresh and go to the marketplace, you can install Bitcoin. I think we have it listed all the way back to version like 21. So you can just install an old version of Bitcoin if you want and then upgrade later. Um, you can upgrade, you can downgrade, right? If you want to go back to a previous version, you can. Not all services can be downgraded because things like Lightning 
for instance, uh, L&D, do not allow <laughs> for downgrades. Like they literally do like Lightning Labs builds like one-way migrations. Uh, Core Lightning, same thing. You just can't go backwards with these technologies because they're so young um, and immature that they they don't even maintain backwards compatibility. Bitcoin is not the same. Bitcoin is you know massively backwards compatible, super mature, and and you can downgrade it. Well, so not only can you choose what fork of Bitcoin you want to run if there happens to be a contentious fork, all it would take is for somebody to package up the the fork in question, right? So you have core, and then some fork. We'll call it fork B arises. Uh, you know, in a twenty four hour period somebody could package up fork B and call it Bitcoin B and then publish it to um, the community registry. Um, or you could just distribute the binary and sideload it. So StartOS has a really nice sideloading feature so that you don't have to go to our, our marketplace. Um, you know, Start9 hosts a marketplace where like we host store listings and binaries and you can browse around there and you can download them and install them, but you don't have to. Um, first of all, you could browse somebody else's registry. So the registry code base, like all of Start9's code bases, uh, are completely open source. Um, and anyone on earth can run a competing registry. So if you wanted to, you could host a, a registry that hosts all your favorite services so that your friends and family could browse and download and install them. And that way nobody would have to trust Start9. So you know, you anyone on earth can spin up a competing registry. Um, and if you don't trust anyone's registry, you can literally go download the um, service binaries yourself. You could compile them from source code if you wanted yourself, and then just literally drag and drop them into the UI, and they will install just like they would from a marketplace. So there's a variety of ways for you to obtain the software you want to run all the way to the extreme of not trusting anyone at all <laughs> except yourself, uh, all the way to the most convenient way, which is that you're trusting Start9. So, you know, the default way is that if somebody goes to the marketplace and clicks download or install on Bitcoin, they are trusting Start9. They are trusting that Start9 has compiled the code as it is displayed in GitHub and hosted that binary unadulterated, uh, unadulterated on, our, on our registry. And then we sent you that correct binary. StartOS does do a very simple signature verification to make sure that you know the person that signed the binary um, is, is the same and it does a git hash comparison. However, that could pretty trivially be forged at this point. So it's, it's more of a infrastructure that we have built rather than an assurance. In the future, signature verification will be much more robust, as in you will be able to add trusted keys to your server. So you'll go into settings, You'll click trusted keys and you will literally copy paste a few public keys that you trust. So like me, for instance, or you trust Aiden, my partner, or you trust your friend, whoever. And StartOS will only allow you to install services that have been signed by the private keys that correspond to the public keys that you have explicitly trusted. So that is not built yet, but we have the infrastructure for it built and it will be coming in a future release. Um, another question that you had asked is about uh, automatic updates. Uh, they do not exist in StartOS. Um, we have no plan whatsoever to make that a feature. Um, we think it's dangerous. So you always, the user always 
has to explicitly update any service and StartOS itself. There's no such thing as automatic updates. Automatic updates are just giant vulnerabilities waiting to be exposed. Um, so that doesn't exist and probably will not exist. And then the last piece that you had asked is about um, exposure of like um, home IPs, for instance, to third-party servers. So your server is going to, insofar as it is connecting over networks, for instance, Bitcoin, right? like when you run a Bitcoin node from your home, by default, that node is... Anybody else lose him or is that just me? Yeah, I lost him too. Man, that's really good. I forgot how good of a speaker Matt Hill is. He's just going. Yeah, I've never heard him before, but he's doing great. All right. While we're waiting for him to come back and solve whatever issues he's got going on there, you can check out start9.com. That's the website. They've got two different servers. One of them is called Server One, and that's listed at $549. And then there's Server Pure, which is listed at $1,299. By the way, they're not sponsoring us. We're not getting anything for talking about them. I've just heard people that I know say some really good things. And um, it made me start paying more attention because I've used a couple of different nodes, like all in one kind of, you know, comes as a node ready to go out of the box kind of uh, solutions. And I can't say, I mean, I've had some of them are great, some of them are fine, I guess. Um, but over time, uh, they're not. What's the word? These are not mature products. <laughs> They're still developing, still growing. And to hear that that Start9 products are so well-received is, is interesting to me. Probably going to take a look at one. Skidoo, good morning. What's up? Can't hear you. Speaking to your phone. Hold on. Hold on a second. Let me turn this off. Can you hear me? Well, yep, yeah. go ahead. Oh, there we go. Cool. Sorry. Uh, Bluetooth shit, you know. Um, so I was just looking at Start9 yesterday online, and I'm not a really, I'm not a techie person at all, and, uh, you know, just basic shit. Um, what, what can people give as insights about how hard this would be for someone to set up who just has basic fundamental computing understanding? All right, Skidoo, Start9 actually lost connection to the space, so he did yep. not probably hear your question. Uh, Do you want to repeat it? And then if you don't mind, mute yourself if you're not talking. Sure. Yeah, so my question is just basically for someone with just simple, basic, surfing the net, Gmail, downloading apps, computing you know, skill set, how hard is, is Start9 to set up if I wanted to purchase it because I'm very interested? Yeah, right on. Um, can you guys hear me now? I don't know what happened. Yes, we can hear you. Cool. All right. Um, so I don't know. Did I finish the last question? Where did you lose me? I was very 
close to being done, but I'm not sure where it cut off. Uh, I think you were just covering off the IPs being registered. Um, um, if you call out to centralized services, I think you were right. Okay, on the last question. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So let me wrap that up real quick, just before we move on, because it's a, it's an important point that has come up on Twitter a few times over the last couple of months. Um, so by default, for Bitcoin, for instance, your node is going to reach out to other nodes in order to you know do normal Bitcoin network things, right? To sync blocks and relay transactions. And by default, this is how Bitcoin is just designed. It's going to reach out over ClearNet. That is the you know fastest, most reliable way to communicate over a network. And so that's what it's doing. And so from your home, your Bitcoin node regardless of what platform you're running it on, this has nothing to do with StartOS, is exposing your home IP address to every single other Bitcoin node that you're connected to, right? That's how it works. Um, and that is true for any service that connects over any network. So same thing with Lightning. StartOS does provide, and as does Bitcoin, ways for you to um, disable ClearNet and only communicate over Tor, for instance. So if you go into your StartOS Bitcoin config settings, there's an option in the advanced section that just says disable ClearNet. And so you toggle that on and your node will no longer communicate over the Bitcoin network over ClearNet, which means it will not be exposing its IP to any other nodes on the network. It will, it will only work over Tor, which will make it slower and less reliable. So there's a trade-off there. Um, the only request that your server ever makes to a Start9 server is when you go to the marketplace and shop for something. So if you're look if you're browsing through our marketplace for something to install, by definition, you are your server is reaching out to our server in order to to look around. And that in theory it, like exposes your IP address to start nine. Now we don't look at them, we don't write them down, we don't record them, but you're trusting us in that. Like we have no interest in in this, but you are believing us. Now Say like you don't believe us. What's the worst thing that can happen here? Like, what can we do with this information? Ultimately, what this allows us to do would be to, if say like somebody came into our office with a gun and was just like, give me the IP addresses of everyone who's ever visited your marketplace. What this would expose is everyone in the world who is running StartOS, which is roughly equivalent to, oh, and that, that assumes you're not using a VPN, by the way. Right. Like that assumes that you are, in fact, visiting our marketplace from your like actual home IP. Um, what that is equivalent to ultimately is exactly the same information that would be had about Mac OS, iOS, Android, et cetera. It basically means that you're running it. It means you're running an operating system on a computer. Right. There's no information about you. There's no information about um, like what you're using it for. Um, in theory, there could be some extreme aggregation of like, what services has this IP address downloaded? But there's no indication that you ever used the service that you downloaded. Maybe you were downloading it just to see what it was and then you deleted it. There's no indication that you ever used it. There's no indication of what you used it for. There's basically nothing, right? So our claim is basically this. One, we don't give a damn about your IP address. We're not looking. We're not recording. We don't care. Nobody has ever asked us for them. And we have a canary on our website that says we've never been you know, uh, uh, forced to hand over anything to a government. And if that ever disappears, then call me, you know, and maybe something's going on. But it's still there. We don't care. But even if we did care, if we were the worst people on earth and we were or we were being coerced, the worst possible thing anyone could know about you 
is that you're running start OS and what services you have ever downloaded, period. And our stance is, is that as when it becomes illegal to run Linux and download software, we've reached a new era of, of uh, you know, fiat endgame. Um, and we're not even close to something like that. So it's not a threat and it's not a real threat. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up because there was a lot of backlash at one point against Umbral for, for the fact that they were like, checking for updates on some sort of a, like every minute they were like pinging their servers to like see if updates were available. That's really inefficient and kind of a stupid way to do something. But at the same time, the outrage over like they're collecting IPs was one, not justifiable as in there's no evidence whatsoever that they were collecting IPs. And two, even if they were collecting IPs, people need to understand that like when you use the internet to do anything at all, like, when you pick up your phone and you do something, anything, or you open your laptop and you do anything, your IP address is being blown all over the internet, all the time, 24 seven, 365. Like you are just blowing your IP address all over the internet. And if you don't wanna do that, then you have to use a VPN, right? You have to intercede all traffic, presumably at your router, right? Like if you don't want any of your home traffic, to expose your IP address to anyone anywhere, you've got to use a VPN on your router so that all outbound traffic gets transformed into a different IP address. At which case, what you are doing is you are exposing all of your internet traffic to a single VPN provider. So instead of providing 100 different companies around the internet with your IP address, you're providing one company with all of your internet traffic. So choose your poison. Okay, there is Matt, no way. Sorry, would it be fair to say that you'd have to trust Start9 to also not broadcast wallet balances? Because in theory, you could gather those. And Absolutely say this. not. Right, we, okay, great. That's good We have, We have no, we, we as, as a company do not know who our customers are because we don't retain any identifiable information past 30 days. Um, if you shop through our fiat store, it can take longer because we have to then pass that request along to the, the upstream e-commerce provider and they can take like six months to delete stuff. But we're getting off of that because it's stupid and it's expensive and it's, it's you know, again, we don't like that process. But we don't know who our customers are. We have no idea if you've ever plugged it in, if you've ever turned it on, and if you did ever turn it on, what you did with it. Unless you come into our chat and you tell us those things in order to get customer support. We are basically violating every principle <laughs> in cloud-based business that you can violate in the sense of you're supposed to know everything about your customers. That's the essential principle of like every company in Silicon Valley in the last 20 years is basically mine the shit out of them, know everything about them, know their behaviors, know what they do because data is gold and knowing your customers helps you iterate your product and understand their behavior and all the rest of the rest. We know nothing. And not because we choose not to know nothing. We know nothing because we can't know anything. Like our ability to know your Bitcoin wallet balance is, is non-existent. Like it's, it's, again, not because we're good guys. That is unimaginable. Like we'd have to break every law of physics in order to do that. It's just not possible for us to know that. Um, yeah, we know nothing. All right. I guess that so. if, if we were super like... If we were if we were just bad guys, 
given the technology, the worst possible thing that we could do, and this is really important to understand because it's so much less than what you are doing on your phone and computer with every other thing you do in the world. The worst possible thing that we could do is we could know which IP addresses downloaded which services. And my overall stance there is that's amazing. That is a huge accomplishment to know that little about people. Um, and okay. We can so, yeah, go ahead. Matt, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but we've got like four minutes. Neil Jacobs, okay. who is on the Swan handle, has a hard stop in four minutes. Great. So um, I just wanted to move to wrap up and basically say thank you so much for being here. Man, I wish we had you for another 30 minutes. Absolutely, I'm going to blame you, Neil Jacobs. Yeah, we got to two <laughs> questions. Um, I should probably answer that other question really quick. Okay, we got to be fast, and then we're going to let you make any closing comments you want, and then we're going to wrap. Yes, I'll be very, very fast about it. Um, but I don't remember what it was. Can somebody TLDR? It was 23 Skidoo. Uh, yeah, first heard of you on uh, Survival Podcast a long time ago when you guys first came out. Anyway, question was, how easy is it to install for oh, someone who just operates basic basic computing? Right. Yes, okay, this is, a, this is an easy one to answer. Our basic stance is that in order to use StartOS effectively, you have to be computer literate. And the way we define computer literacy is actually really straightforward. <laughs> Do you feel comfortable going into the settings menu on your iOS, Android, Mac OS, or Windows device and making changes? Not the command line, no Vim, no Nano, nothing like that, just the settings menu. Like, can you go into your Mac OS settings and go make changes without panicking? If the answer is yes, you can use StartOS. Where, where are the settings? No, I'm just joking. Yes, sorry. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's how we define computer literacy, as in it's not enough to just be able to use apps. You have to be able to go into the settings of your apps and operating system and feel comfortable. So basically, most people are computer literate. Um, there's still a pocket of humanity that is obviously not there, but most people, at least that you know I've known in my life, I would define as computer literate, and they can use StartOS. Skidoo, right. 23 Skidoo, I had a real quick ask. 23 no. Skidoo, I, I DM'd no. you. I DM'd you. Just DM me back. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Hill, founder of Start9 Sovereign Computing. You can find them at start9.com. That's S-T-A-R-T number nine dot com. Matt, closing comments and we wrap. No, said it all. Thanks, guys. Appreciate being on. And yeah, I'd love to come back sometime and handle a few more questions. I think there were some more out there. Yeah, I bet you there'd be a lot. I suspect we could have gone for another probably hour, actually. Uh, I had a ton more questions, but you know what? We're going to have to do it again another time. I love having you here, Matt. You're a great speaker. Really appreciate the way you cover things in depth. You guys are obviously extremely thorough, so very impressed. Uh, and that's a wrap. We um, have got to go, but we will do it again. Thanks, guys. At some point, for sure. Okay, you have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. It is also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple if you cannot catch the live show. 
You can throw me your swan a follow to be notified of when those drop. Things that are coming up. We've got Bitcoin veterans at 7 p.m. Um, on Wednesday night, we're going to have Preston Pish as our guest. Looking forward to that. Uh, also, thanks to Swan Bitcoin and Marathon, the sponsors of Cafe Bitcoin, my crew and Peter Sats for Life, Wicked Dom Bay and producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Stanzik. Work with Swan. Shoot Medium if you want to know more. Thanks again. Matt Hill, all the speakers who come on here on the regular teaching people about this bright orange feature. We appreciate you guys. We appreciate you taking your personal time to do that. All the listeners appreciate it too. I get tons of DMs from people who say, man, really love what you guys have been doing for the last couple of years, have learned so much. This is what we call being on the mission. Get on the mission. If you don't know what it means, hang out. You'll figure it out. Love you guys. Everybody go have a great day today. Crush it. <laughs>